good morning and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, FDR8 Talk English, on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. And I am going to talk to you today about Charles Dickens and the wrongs of society. Why am I talking to you about the wrongs of society? Well, it is officially kind of his agenda. He tries to bring in this really obvious, obvious agenda into everything. Society is bad, life is tough for poor people, sort that out, middle class readership. And it comes up in Christmas Carol, where he talks about the charity collectors and Scrooge is so rude to them and Scrooge doesn't care about the fate of the poor and poor old Bob Cratchit and at the end he learns his lesson of course he does poverty was an inescapable sight in Victorian London in fact it was so huge and prevalent it's actually really difficult to break down into one podcast it could be like a whole series on its own let's start as dickens did in david copperfield right at the beginning of queen victoria's reign the years 1837 to 1844 brought the worst economic depression ever to have hit the british people in the years before the Irish famine, it's estimated a million of the poorest people died due to conditions brought on by unemployment. This begins three years after the Tollpuddle Martyrs are sentenced in 1834. Six labourers formed a club to support each other through their hardship and they were arrested and sentenced under the crime of forming a secret society. At the same time, Lord Melbourne, the PM, is quoted as saying, Why bother the poor? Leave them alone. Enter into the scene, Mr Charles Dickens. He had three areas he wanted to tackle. And a pet project, which I have to say is a bit of a weird one, but I kind of love it. The first thing he was obsessed with was education in particular what was called ragged schools they were independent charity schools that were run by the well-meaning rich of this world to provide education food and clothing for those who are unable to do so themselves there was a fairly strict criteria for who could be admitted to a ragged school you had to be uh, perhaps the child of a convict who'd been transported, the child of a convict in a home prison, the children of thieves, the children of tramps, the children of, oh my gosh, worthless and drunken parents, the children of stepfathers and stepmothers, I mean, God forbid you live with someone who isn't your biological parent, right? Often driven to neglect and cruelty to shift for themselves. Children of those suitable for the workhouse, but living a vagrant, semi-criminal life. Children of honest parents, too poor to pay for schooling or to clothe the children, so as to enable them to attend an ordinary school. Orphans, deserted children and runaways who live by begging and stealing. Workhouse lads who have left it and become vagrants lads of the street trading classes, girl hawkers, working 
four cruel and ruthless parents and the hill I will die on, which is officially prejudice against the Catholics. Criteria number 13, the children of poor Roman Catholics who do not object to their children reading the Bible. Just a sec, before we go on, we're going to talk briefly about the workhouse. I am going to come back to this on my episode focusing on Scrooge. The 1834 Poor Laws changed the way that benefits were provided. I mean, if we think of them today in terms of employment benefit, even though that doesn't really translate, but it's the easiest way of thinking about it. Rather than people getting food bank, food, or benefits delivered to them outside or in their home, the way local authorities organised it is instead of getting that, you would have to go and live in what was called a workhouse. Okay, you would get food, you would get somewhere to sleep, you would be working 24-7, and it was a horrible, horrible place. It was incredibly shameful to have to go there, and it just sounds awfully grim. It's a punishment for being poor. And that's what one of the things that Dickens really, really hated. I'm going to be quoting quite a lot from the historian Liza Picard in this bit who has written a really, really fab book called Victorian London. She says the ragged schools were among the least known of Victorian achievements. They took ragged, in brackets, verminous and naked children and clothed and fed them and taught them rudimentary social skills, let alone the three R's plus a four, religion. Okay, the three R's are reading, writing and arithmetic, aka maths, instead of leaving the children to fester in the gutter. They have many critics, and indeed to us their religious ethos may not be wholly congenial. Instead of looking at them from our viewpoint, consider the scene before they existed. There was no way for a destitute child to learn anything except crime and begging. No one concerned themselves with the welfare of these children except the dreaded workhouse guardians. Police were against educating them, saying, We are teaching the thieves to steal the articles marked at the highest figures. Dickens took it upon himself to inspect and sponsor these ragged schools, putting his money literally where his mouth was. He talked a good game, but he actually put in money for these. Of course, running them wasn't exactly an easy task. First, you had to get some students. This guy, Quentin Hogg, writing in 1818, found this a bit of a trial. He said, my first effort was to get a couple of crossing sweepers who I picked up near Trafalgar Square and offered to teach how to read. In those days, the Thames Embankment did not exist and the Adelphi arches were open both to the tide and the street. Uh, He means the bit at the back of Charing Cross Station where um, the Starbucks is basically where Embankment Station is now. With an empty beer bottle for a candlestick and a tallow candle for illumination and a couple of bibles as reading books we had not been engaged in our reading very long when i noticed a twinkling light cool lecky lot shouted one of the boys in cockney backslang which means look the police at the same time dousing the glim putting out the lights and bolting with his companion well i'm i'm fairly sure that would happen to be honest when i was at sixth form and this tells you quite a lot about um the sort of school i went to (laughs) And this kid had a small amount of marijuana in his pocket and he was walking up the road to go into our sixth form centre. I point out, obviously, there was no drugs on the premises, but everyone knew this kid did it. He had indulged slightly 
before coming in, saw the community support officer got a massive fear and jumped into a hedge. The police officer would obviously not have taken any notice of him had he not done this and he got arrested because he jumped into a hedge like an idiot so I can only relate to this personally <laughs> poor old Gwendinog even when he'd finally set up a school there was still like a million problems he was sitting at home one day when he got a desperate call from the school like some messenger obviously when he got there he found the whole school in an uproar the gas fittings had been wrenched off <laughs> and were used as batons by the boys for striking the police while the rest of them were pelting them with slates. I feel rather alarmed for the safety of the teacher and rushing into the darkened room called out for the boys to instantly stop and be quiet. To my amazement, the riot stopped immediately. <laughs> I have to laugh because the amount of times I've heard someone scream, FIGHT! when I've been on break duty and they're like oh my god and you have to just run in before the whole school piles in but he kids did appreciate it kids did appreciate it a lot this one kid said most of the boys were thieves and after we came out at school at nine o'clock at night some of the bad boys would go a thieving but the master was very kind to us they used to give us tea parties and keep us quiet they showed us the magic lantern sometimes they were singing and drawing lessons and travel stories so it sounds pretty good and things are progressing i mean before then there's literally nothing and dickens is so big on this this is because, as I mentioned last episode, Dickens' schooling was interrupted. He had to, when his dad went to debtor's prison, he had to stop his education and he had to go out to work. Dickens said, well, he never wrote an autobiography, but he got interviewed by his best mate, who then wrote it in the third person. So this is a quote from that biography, but I've turned it back into the first person. He had to work at what's called a blacking factory. And I believe I quoted this last time, but he said he had to wear a ragged apron and paper cap. There were rats in the wainscoting. He had to clip the paper all nice and neat. It was a crazy tumble-down old house and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me as if I were there again. Oh, poor old Charlie D. Well, Charlie D had obviously quite a lot of issues going on with that but he did very very much want to do better he wanted people to have better he felt really strongly the second of his causes about prison reform in one of his earlier autobiographical books he talked about newgate prison and it's quite heart-wrenching his description i'm going to read you the last bit where he talks about a condemned man he says conceive the situation of a man spending his last night on earth in this cell buoyed up with some vague and undefined hope of reprieve he knew not why indulging in some wild and visionary idea of escaping he knew not how hour after hour of the three preceding days allowed him for preparation has fled with a speed with which no man living would deem possible for none but this dying man can know he has wearied his friends with entreaties exhausted the attendants with importunities neglected in 
in his feverish restlessness the timely warnings of his spiritual consoler and now that illusion is at last dispelled now that eternity is before him and guilt behind now that his fears of death amount almost to madness and an overwhelming sense of his helplessness hopeless state rushes upon him he is lost and stupefied and has neither thoughts to turn to nor power to call upon the almighty being from whom alone he can seek mercy and forgiveness and be for whom his repentance alone can prevail. The night is dark and cold, the gates have been left open, in an instant he is in the street, flying from imprisonment. Like the wind, the streets are cleared, the open fields are gained, and the broad, wide country lies before him. Onwards he dashes in the midst of darkness, over hedge and ditch, through mud and pool, bounding from spot to spot with a speed and lightness, astonishing even to himself. At length he pauses, he must be safe from pursuit now. He will stretch himself on that bank and sleep till sunrise. A period of unconsciousness su succeeds. He wakes cold and wretched. The dull grey light of morning is stealing into his cell and falls upon the form of the attendant turnkey. Confused by his dreams, he starts from his uneasy bed in momentary uncertainty, but it is but momentary. Every object in the narrow cell is too frightfully real to admit of doubt or mistake. He is the condemned felon again, guilty and despairing. In two hours more, he will be dead. It's it's dramatic stuff, and Dickens always has a touch of this melodrama in him. He actually protested, protested and agitated after visiting Pentonville, demanding the reform of the entire UK prison system. This whole theme of prisons carried on through many of his works, like Oliver Twist, Great Expectations and The Tale of Two Cities. I mean, Marley is imprisoned in chains. We can argue that Scrooge is almost imprisoned in his own, in a miserable fortress of his own making. Sentences for prisons were largely a little bit random and kind of arbitrary. The Newgate calendar for 1858, recording all the cases heard that year in the Central Criminal Court, shows wide variations in sentencing. A 15-year-old boxmaker and his accomplice, a 21-year-old shoemaker, stole a handkerchief worth one shilling. They were both transported for seven years. Two other pickpockets, who each stole a handkerchief worth three shillings and two shillings, were sentenced by the same judge one to a month in prison and the other to four years in prison. Someone who nicked a bottle of gin got 14 days in prison. A bigamist got 14 days, but another one got a year in prison. For child molestation, you might get six months, but for actually assaulting a child, you might get a year. It's absolutely random. Prisons themselves, or at least the new ones, were based on Jerem the philosopher Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, the perfect prison where all prisoners could be watched at all times. So you had like a cylindrical guard tower in the middle where all the guards could watch out and all the cells around the outside and they were like open on one side to the tower. So anyone could be watched all the time. And it was this like fear of, am I being watched right now, that would keep people in place. The prisons were, and I cannot think of a better word for this, incredibly grim. They were horrible. The prisoners slept on hammocks with mattresses and blanket. Once a fortnight, they got clean shirts. And it's just awful. There was literally silence all the time. And you were not allowed to communicate with another prisoner. 
What I've managed to find is an account from an actual Victorian prisoner. So this guy wrote anonymously from within Pentonville prison and he said, when the door of my, my cell snapped to upon me, I found myself in a dark stone box, 14 feet by seven, with a begrimed window pane heavily barred up under the ceiling. There was a row of shining utensils for sanitary eating and other uses. The walls were painted yellow up to a certain height and whitewashed above that. The man in the cell above me began to march up and down. I heard each step he took, clanking through the asphalt and iron ceilinged roof of my cell till after half an hour the monotonous tramp tramp of this restless prisoner struck a chill into my brain and I hammered on the ceiling of my cell to make him stop. It grew dark about eight o'clock in the evening and the bell rang at that hour for bedtime. I then took down from where it stood upright against the wall of my cell the wooden plank which was the basis of my bed laid upon it the hard mattress which was rolled up in the corner under the wooden shelf and took from their appointed place above the mattress the tightly rolled sheets and blankets and lay them upon the bed. I'd hardly been in bed a few moments when the banging of the, on the doors of the thousand cells of the prison startled my overwrought system. This sound grew nearer and nearer and passed by the critical moment when I thought my own cell had been reached only to recommence in the far distance and grow louder and nearer once more like it is unbelievably awful and this is what dickens wanted to avoid because he had experienced that prison life as a young man and he knew how blooming awful it was the other thing that dickens was really passionate about changing was sanitation london was absolutely filthy it was believed the miasma or bad air was what caused disease but the great stink oh, of 1858 made the source of the more of a problem because it was noticed the thames was flowing with undiluted sewage as a result there are recurrent epidemics of cholera between 1832 and 1853 enter dr john snow who realized by mapping the cases it was water causing the disease and not air because the cases were very close to water pumps and if there was an infected water pump that's where it was coming from. Dickens used his platform as the editor of the magazine Household Words to help his readers with health issues. He wrote and published articles on a huge range of topics including vaccinations, child rearing, poisons, epilepsy, homeopathy and caring for veterans. Again, he was the kind of dude who put his money where his mouth was, and I do respect him for that, because he trusted doctors. And he thought that if there was a medical advance, he should go for it. His wife, when she was expecting her eighth child in 1849, decided to research anaesthesia, specifically chloroform. And Dickens later wrote, that he insisted on the attendance of a gentleman from Bart's Hospital who administers it in the operations there and has given it four or five thousand times when his wife was due to give birth. It saved her all pain. She had no sensation but of a great display of skyrockets and saved the child from all mutilation by forceps delivery. It enabled the doctors to do in ten minutes what might otherwise have taken them one and a half hours. The shock to her nervous system was reduced to nothing and she was, to all intents and purposes, well next day. Administered by someone who has nothing else to do, who knows its symptoms thoroughly and who keeps his hand upon the pulse and eyes upon the face and uses nothing but a handkerchief and that lightly, 
I am convinced it is as safe in its administration as it is miraculous and merciful in its effects. So not only was he preaching this, he was, okay, I don't know how much his wife like had to do with this, but he was actually prepared to put his own wife and child's life on the line, which in itself is quite admirable, but I sort of wish he would have asked um, Mrs. Dickens before he did this. But what you can do, it's the 19th century. The most interesting project he did was called Urania Cottage. It is in Shepherd's Bush, and I don't think it still survives. But in 1846, three years after the writing of Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens hit on the scheme to help and reform ex-offenders who had turned to prostitution. He was going to do this through a loving and educational establishment. He would run with the financial backing of Angela Court who is the heiress to the banking fortune. And this makes me think, actually. Uh, so thinking back to Jekyll and Hyde, when he says, oh, he draws a cheque from courts, does that mean that he draws it from an institution which is seen to be very ethical? Could that be something that I've missed out on that I've only just learned? Ooh. I'm referring in this bit to Jenny Hartley's book, Charles Dickens and the House of Fallen Women, which is absolutely fascinating, by the way. She says that over the years, Dickens supported many charities and benevolent funds. While he never had much faith in government, he did have faith in the power of the individual to change for good. In his books and stories, his characters can convert suddenly, turn their lives around for the better, but it was easier for men than women. One sexual mistake was enough to condemn a woman as fallen. This was a conventional Victorian line. It's a line that Dickens was never happy with. When he put together this scheme, he starts not with the woman herself, nor even with what the home will be like, but with the end point of emigration and the distant parts of the world where the women could be sent for marriage. For him, emigration is what sets the whole thing going. Emigration plus marriage, with the young woman featured to begin with as parcels, male order brides. Dickens himself looks like a one-man transportation scheme. What I actually find funny is you've got this, um, he has this weird obsession with Australia as being a place where you know you can make yourself and he's all about being a self-made man so i'm going on holiday to australia for the whole month of september actually i'm going traveling and this just made me laugh so he shipped three of his sons off to australia with like a one-way ticket and a bit of pocket money and was like come back when you're successful mate and like the idea is that you'd be hardy and self-sufficient and i'm like really really so if i come back after traveling and i'm not eaten by a crocodile and i'm really hardy and self-sufficient then you know it's australia that's done that for me so winner 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 charlie d like the whole point of this urania experiment was it opposed current thinking on fallenness it championed the belief that by far the majority of convicts exhibit many redeeming virtues it put its faith in the possibility of reform but this was a time when the downward path of the fallen woman was assumed to be inevitable and irreversible this guy ralph wardlaw writing in 1842 says the tendency is all downwards even in thievery there may be an advance but in the present case rising is a thing unknown it cannot be it is all descent Oh my gosh, that is awful. Dickens went out of his way 
to work against this. He actually interviewed each one of the potential, um, well, they said inmates for census purposes, but the potential uh, ladies to check they were suitable. In 1835, he wrote to his backer saying, I have taken some pains to find out the dispositions and nature of every individual we take, and I think I know them pretty well, and may be able to give the matron some useful foreknowledge of them and to exercise some personal influence with them in case of need. Well, he really, really did. And for a little while, I thought this was dodgy as, like, I mean, the guy is basically in charge of a house full of women and their ex-sex workers. And he's like, oh, but Hartley raises this really good point that if he wanted to mistreat ladies, he could have done it really, really easily without schlepping all the way over to Shepherd's Bush. I mean, this is the Victorian era. If he wanted to behave in that way, he very, very easily could, and he probably didn't. It's, he, as a person, always preferred female company to male, and also, because in the Victorian era, apparently you're allowed to slag off your own children, always preferred his daughters to his sons. So what was it like in this place? The day began with prayers and breakfast a quarter to eight. Then the inmates divided into twos and threes to do their work in the bedrooms, kitchen, scullery and laundry. But you got free time. Half an hour before dinner at one o'clock and an hour afterwards. If possible, they'd go outside for some exercise or tend to their gardens. Then they had half an hour to themselves before tea at six and an hour after that when they sat together at their needlework, listening to someone reading aloud. Evening prayers were at half past eight. What? I am slightly obsessed with, I have to say, is the fact that Dickens personally took charge of their literacy, which on one hand is really, really awesome. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool of him. But he also wrote lesson plans and he also provided all the literacy resources, starting with the alphabet, including words like kangaroo because inevitably they would meet some kangaroos when they went to Australia and I love it they talk from his lesson plans he scanned catalogues for teaching aids and chose realistically the elementary rules of arithmetic set out on stiffened sheets large pictures of birds and animals with short descriptions underneath the series Dickens Pip started with a gothic looking long-eared gothic looking long-eared bat and introduced the prospective emigrants to their first kangaroo his caption informed them that it was an interesting and good-tempered animal <laughs> like it's kind of a controversial thing on teacher Twitter. Should you grade lesson plans? I want to know what grading Charles Dickens would have got. I really, really, really want to know this because it is just fab. <laughs> they had a house points system, a reward system, where you were marked out of nine potential criteria. Truthfulness, industry, temper, propriety of conduct and conversation, temperance, order, punctuality, economy and cleanliness. If once your points were totted up once a week, you've done well, then you got a little bit of money to put in your savings for when you move to Australia. The goal is always get out of town. Dickens in some ways we're going to argue like what's in it for him and what he got was the fodder for a lot of his articles 
and a lot of the characters because some of the characters in his books for example nancy in oliver twist came directly from these girls when he was writing for household words he actually did some profiles of these girls we don't have his original notes by the way because he had a midlife crisis and burned all of his letters and writings when he separated from his wife he just set a massive bonfire and was like i am done now (laughs) um i have been threatening to burn down my house if i ever spot a mouse because i am absolutely terrified of mice so if you hear about this on the local news woman sets fire to house because she saw a mouse i am burning everything then you know i'm having a dickensian moment one of the profiles he did describes a girl who is pseudonymed as number 27 he says she had been apprenticed to a small flower maker with three others they were ill-treated and all seemed to have run away at different times this girl last who absconded with an old man a hawker like a traveling salesman who brought combs and things to the door of sale she took what she called some old clothes of her mistress with her and was apprehended with the old man and they were tried together he was acquitted she was found guilty her sentence was six months imprisonment and on its expiration she was received into the home this person he says was appallingly ignorant but most anxious to learn and contended against her blundered facilities with a conscientiously slow perseverance she showed a remarkable capacity for copywriting by the eye alone without having the least idea of its sound or what it meant there seemed to be some analogy between her making letters and her making artificial flowers Lastly, I'll tell you about number 13. At last her mother died in a workhouse and the needlework falling off bit by bit, this girl suffered for nine months, every extremity of dire distress. Being one night without any food or shelter from the weather, she went to the lodging of a woman who had once lived in the same house with herself and her mother and asked to be allowed to lie down on the stairs. She was refused and stole a shawl which she sold for a penny. A fortnight afterwards, being still in a starving and houseless state, she went back to the same woman's and preferred the same request. Again refused, she stole a Bible from her, which she sold for tuppence. The theft was immediately discovered and she was taken as she lay asleep into the casual ward of a workhouse. After three months in prison, she was released and she went there. There was a lot of success. It was about Dickens aimed for a 50-50 success rate. And there was a lot of successes. Uh, The writer of the book I'm referring to, Jenny Hartley, traces some of them. And a lot of the girls had successful lives. This case study, other than being deeply fascinating, again, I just sort of want to do a whole podcast on this. It shows, A, how committed Dickens is to this agenda of making the rich realise that the poor are people controversially people are people which incidentally is exactly what i say whenever a question about transphobia comes up i'm like the clue is in the name trans people you need to proofread correctly and the point is that he does this agenda the poorer people bob cratchit has a face his family have some insight into their characters tiny tim is very appealing and all that he wants people to realize that poor are people 
and he spent that time not only preaching this in his journalism but working this into every single book he ever wrote if you are listening to this and you are somewhere around the 15 16 years old mark firstly i'm sorry every episode i do seems to be about sex workers like i try and avoid it but everything comes back to it just remember dickens poor dickens help the poor that's his agenda poor people are always good in his books promote the interests of the poor rich guys are bad blah 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 you got it if you keep that message in mind when we go through christmas carol you're gonna see number one this book is a bit of a cash grab he wrote it mostly because he liked money but also it's a vehicle for this message he hasn't taken the time to do elaborate elaborate stories like he has with some of his other novels message cash grab christmas done mic drop could have done this in a tweet but i didn't so thank you very much for listening ladies and gentlemen i am as ever katherine stra talk english on twitter straight talkenglish.com i promise promise promised you that i will give you some more details of my book which is out soon and as we were talking i don't know if you heard my phone go off it is my editor and she is officially done with it so more updates coming soon have a lovely 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 day give money to the poor remember the poor are people we can all get redemption and christmas is awesome and i will speak to you very soon